I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. This is the sixth edition of This Is Not Advice, a twice-monthly not-advice column for premium subscribers of What Works. But once I got rocking and rolling on this one, I knew I wanted to share it with everyone. If you'd like to receive future editions of This Is Not Advice, become a premium subscriber today and support my work for just $7 per month. Go to whatworks.fyi to subscribe. That's whatworks.fyi. For this edition of This Is Not Advice, I wanted to piggyback on the conversation I had with Jay Akunzo about social media generally and threads specifically. Part of the conversation that didn't make it into the main piece involved the ratio of how much creating versus consuming we do online. Every social network I appear on, I'd say I spend 95% of my time on that network or app creating and or engaging in my comments and maybe 5% consuming. I mentioned some of the things I've read about the general vibe of threads so far, and he replied. When people write about it, I'm like, it sounds like you're spending too much time consuming content. That's my pithy assessment. Jay, of course, is not alone in this opinion. I've seen it echoed by ConvertKit founder Nathan Barry on Twitter and by plenty of others as well. And I get it. Social media can be a time suck. It's easy to get distracted by posts meant to bait or manipulate you. But I don't share this opinion. Jay had some thoughtful things to say when I brought up my concerns, and we'll get to those. I am in no way throwing him under the bus or saying he's doing it wrong. This is, this is not advice, after all, and we don't play that game here. This essay is in two main parts. First, I'll examine the value of immersing oneself in a community of craft. And second, I'll look at the gender dynamics at play and who is and isn't expected to create rather than consume. Finally, I'll wrap it all up by considering whether we can go beyond the creating versus consuming dichotomy and see today's media landscape as a chance to practice a wide range of human impulses. Part one, communities of craft. I just finished up reading a book of essays written by sci-fi and fantasy writer Ursula K. Le Guin. The first section of essays were mostly speeches she delivered to various writers groups. The second section of essays were forewords that she wrote for the reprinting of other people's books. And the third section is book reviews she wrote and published in various places. In other words, Le Guin was immersed in the world of writing, publishing, and reading. Now, of course, I have no idea how she split her time between reading and writing, but she certainly spent a lot of time reading. Last month, I read Natalie Goldberg's Thunder and Lightning. This is a craft book, a book on the craft of writing. But in it, she writes at length about other people's work. The second of three parts is simply titled Reading. She writes that she's often asked, 
what do you need to do in order to become a writer? She says, my reply is always the same. Read, especially in your genre, listen deeply, and of course, write. In the same way an athlete studies other athletes or a musician listens to music, writers read. Goldberg continues, If we read someone who is awake, it helps to wake us up. And think of it. While you read, you're not spending money, getting into a fight, creating karma. What better gift can you give yourself than to arrive in the present moment? I know no greater delight, and I have lived a rich, expansive life. Now, you might be thinking, but Tara, you're talking about capital L literature. Books are different from social media. And yeah, that is absolutely true. It takes a lot of time and attention to read books, which is well worth it in my humble opinion, but it takes much less time to consume social media. For the novelist or the essayist to consume a whole novel or essay takes exponentially more time than it does for a content creator to consume a social media post. Meanwhile, the novelist, essayist, and content creator are better served from investing that time in others' work. They learn what works and what doesn't, what discursive threads they might wish to pull, and how they might incorporate new techniques into their work. How we interpret the content form is every bit a part of the art as the content itself. How we uphold or subvert the expectations of the form is part of our culture making. This is as true for social media content as it is for capital L literature fine art, or music. The social aspect of the medium is key to its form and how we might create with it. Social media aren't simply social because someone else can reply or leave a comment. Social media are social because they constitute a broader social infrastructure. They form collective conversation. Just because a speech act occurs on a platform designed to be social doesn't actually mean it's a work of social media. Without the social component, it's merely a copy of previous broadcast media. The humble meme is a perfect example. Look at this distinguished gentleman. Look at the way he is sitting. Yes, very distinguished. Mm -hmm, I see, I see. A meme is an artifact of social interaction and iteration. A single image no matter what text you layer on top of it, is not a meme in its true sense. An image and its blueprint for meaning becomes a meme when it's reproduced, reconsidered, and reworked by many people over time. Each iteration is a contribution to the collective conversation, and to fully understand the conversation, one must be part of it. All right, so I've gone from capital L literature to look at this distinguished gentleman in a matter of like three paragraphs. But capital L literature and viral TikTok sounds have more in common than just pretentiously affected British accents. Writers of literature, or of anything really, canny Instagrammers, astute podcasters, and savvy TikTokers recognize that we create not as solitary geniuses, but as custodians of story, knowledge, and culture's building blocks. We remix 
edit and translate rather than generate the elusive original creation. We read, watch, and listen to what others create to gain new ways of formulating what we want to say. At the risk of making an overly generic, categorically definitive statement, I'll go so far as to say, great creators consume what others create so that they can become greater creators. I did not mean for that to rhyme. Still, you might be wondering, isn't social media different? Is there really value in exposing yourself to that kind of brain-rotting, knee-jerk verbal vomit? Look, people make bad art in every medium. There are bad paintings, bad music, bad books, bad journalism, bad podcasts, bad movies. But that doesn't mean we throw out the whole medium. We find the art that means something to us, whether it's praised critically or not, and we engage with that. When social media platforms started to emerge, they gave us a new medium to create in. The 140-character post, the live video, the square image, the status update. And part of what made the forms in this new medium new was that the observer was no longer at a remove. You didn't post a status update to Facebook and wait to see what the critics said the next day in the newspaper. Your friends, family, and strangers could immediately engage with what you shared. But it doesn't stop at likes and replies. Perhaps the most social of social media inventions is the personal tag. The at reply goes back to before the social media age. But when Twitter started to build features around that convention, the platform got a whole lot more social. It wasn't only that linked at replies created a two-way conversation. They also allowed users to build off of each other's work. You could reference someone else's work as you put out your own work. It became a type of citation, a nod to those who were part of the lineage of your work. And sure, tagging has been thoroughly abused, but that doesn't change the way it helps to define what social media are. And this is where I think we reach a philosophical impasse, Jay and me. For me, the point of creating social media is to be in conversation with other social media creators, both directly and indirectly. I want my posts and newsletters to relate to the posts and newsletters that others are putting their time and attention into. I see my work as part of a larger discourse between many thinkers, writers, and practitioners, rather than a service I perform for the people who subscribe or follow me. But for Jay, the point of creating social media seems to be different. And of course, I am hesitant to speak for him. So here's part of what he said when I pushed back on his allocation of time and expressed concern about how social media users post and run rather than participate in the broader conversation. There was this like old mm -hmm. principle of the internet, I forget who came up with it early on, it was like the 99-1 principle. Like 90% are lurkers, 9% are kind of casual users, commenters, they post once in a while. And then the 1% are the creators, the, the publishers, the people creating content. 
And I, I think that holds true and maybe even have gotten worse. Because if you think about it, the optics of social media. Now, I believe this is true, that 99% of people using social media apps are at most casual commenters and posters. They're not capital C creators. They're not trying to build an audience or generate a professional portfolio or demonstrate their skill at this, that, or the other thing. And I agree that most of my audience is not other creators either. And if anything, Jay would have a larger percentage of creators because that is who he creates for. But my question, which to be fair to both of us, I actually stopped asking to let him jump in, wasn't so much about followers. It was about the state of the discourse. It was about what happens when we're not plugged into the medium in which we're creating. It was about what happens if creators are increasingly convinced to stick their fingers in their ears and say, I can't hear you, there's too much noise going on. Jay solves this by being someone who conscientiously and generously devotes himself to getting to know people outside of social media spaces. And he does this with much more skill and care than I ever could. I think this strategy works to a degree. Getting to know people personally is different from immersing yourself in the community of your craft. Now, Jay leads his own community of craft, the Creator Kitchen, with content strategist Melanie Diesel. He is immersed in that community of craft, which has its own immense value. But from my own experience in both public social media and leading a private community, it's just not the same. You can gain valuable insight from a paid private community, and the insight you gain from engaging with the broader discourse is a different beast. The social context of a private community is just too siloed and self-selective to give you a real taste for what's happening beyond its digital walls. Now, as I mentioned, Jay is far from the only person to advocate for allocating the vast majority of time to creation over consumption. Having observed this stance become more and more popular since, ooh, say, late 2016, I've had the nagging suspicion that there is something about it that is gendered. And I want to tease that out now. Part two, performing gender on social media. Now, just a heads up. I am going to make some gross generalizations here. Gender performance is perhaps even more fluid online than off. What I'll describe are my own observations over 15 years on social media, plus my own experience as an autistic cis woman who often presents with more masculine energy. Philosopher Kate Mann uses the term caremongering to describe the way that women are penalized for not meeting inordinate expectations for caring. She cites studies that show that college students tend to hold male professors to higher standards of engagement, that is, they're more likely to be rated as boring, and they hold female professors to higher standards of care, that is, they're more likely to be rated as, quote, cold, uncaring, or not developing a personal relationship with each and every student. 
I don't think it's a stretch to extrapolate these findings into the world of social media. Male-coded social media accounts might be expected to wow their followers with tips, tricks, and insights, while female-coded social media accounts might be expected to demonstrate care and concern through their constant presence on the apps. Perhaps the worst sin a male-coded account could commit is being boring. While the worst sin a female-coded account could commit is to be cold and uncaring. And I'd be lying by omission if I didn't tell you that being labeled cold and uncaring online is one of my biggest personal and professional fears. And it absolutely shapes and often chills what I choose to say and create. In this way, caremongering is a form of misogyny. By exerting social pressure on women and woman-identifying people to demonstrate excessive caring, caremongers keep the impact and influence of women to a minimum. Again, commenting on student evaluations of male and female professors, Mann writes, quote, For while a man's not being boring will scale with relative ease to a larger audience, a woman's developing a relationship with each student obviously won't. And beyond a certain point, it will simply not be feasible. Now, of course, any attempt to compare the size or influence of different social media accounts is an exercise in comparing apples to oranges. But I think it's within reason to say that Wowing one's followers with tips and tricks scales better than trying to answer every DM, comment, and email with utmost care. The potential of caremongering isn't a reason to bend to its demands, of course. It isn't even a reason to devote oneself to fully participating in social media spaces. But the potential of caremongering does warp women and woman-identifying people's experience online. And therefore, what we create. Some will rebel against it, and others will lean in. Meanwhile, men learn to channel the genius aesthetic to gain attention. Gender studies scholar Adrian Dobb writes, quote, There is a weird and acknowledged tendency here to treat an effort like architecture, which by definition requires a group and, dare I say it, collectives, as though it were the art that an individual makes in the solitude of a studio or a favorite writing nook. This is what historians of ideas call a genius aesthetic. It describes our tendency to think that the meaning of a work of art comes out of the specific mind of its creator, not out of the pre-existing rules that creator worked within, nor the broader spirit of the society and time. American capitalism has a long history of ignoring the collective effort required to build what we deem genius. Capital systems work best when the effort of workers is de-emphasized and the product and its spoils can be attributed to one man. We might put the genius aesthetic at the other end of the spectrum from caremongering. While women must exert visibly excessive levels of care to gain acceptance, 
men are often rewarded for the opposite. Now, in this case, the opposite of excessive care isn't excessive uncaring. The opposite of excessive care is a sort of proud disconnection from the collective. It's solipsistic disinterest in the cultural community one is a part of. The genius aesthetic gestures broadly to human potential and the good of humanity, but eschews relationship with the community. Men are allowed to articulate a bold vision for the future, while women tend the hearth fires of social engagement. In his book, What Tech Calls Thinking, Adrian Dobb demonstrates the genius aesthetic at work within the tech industry, with social media companies taking center stage. He points out the stark hierarchy between the platform founders and those who create the content that actually allow these platforms to make money. Platform founders, all men, rule the world. Those who supply the content are merely users. Now, what I've observed over the last five to eight years, though, is that this stark hierarchy is actually recreating itself among the content creators themselves. Some creators, predominantly men, but not exclusively, align themselves with platform founders more than the common user. Their method of content creation is masculinized, oriented to themes of success, domination, discipline, and autonomy. And the content itself is made to stand apart from the wider discourse. See also Threadboys. This masculinized form of content creation is perceived as more valuable, more authoritative, and, dare I say, morally superior to feminized forms of content creation. Feminized content creation tends toward the self-reflective, co-creative, and consensus building. Masculinized content is seen as active, while feminized content is seen as passive. In this way, I think it's possible to see the consumption of social media as a form of reproductive labor. Both theorists and economists make a distinction between productive labor and reproductive labor. Productive labor is labor that produces value in the form of goods and services. Reproductive labor, on the other hand, is labor that reproduces labor power, most often other people's, but also one's own. In its simplest terms, you might think of productive labor being the work you do for your job and reproductive labor being the work you do to get ready for the next day on the job. It's a bit more complicated than that, but hopefully you get the idea. The Fordist conception of work and family had a male head of household doing the productive labor on behalf of his family, while the female homemaker did the reproductive labor of getting him ready for the next day of work. We've certainly seen greater parity in this division of familial labor over the last four years but there are many aspects of it that still hold sway. Now, I can't help but draw the parallel between masculinized productive labor and masculinized content creation. Men used to spend the day at the factory making stuff. And today, men spend the day filling their social media scheduler with profound insights. Men used to come home to a clean house, stiff drink, and dinner on the table at 6 p.m., Today, men receive the likes, comments, and shares that refresh their creative drives. 
Now, all that said, this analysis is purposefully reductive. The way we perform gender in our online work is endlessly variable. The gender dynamics of any particular platform or subgroup on a platform inevitably deviates from this pattern. And yet, I still think this analysis is useful in understanding the expectations we hold ourselves and others to online. But what if we look beyond creating versus consuming? In the end, our contemporary notion of creating and with it the oft-praised creativity are inventions of capitalism. We've learned to venerate the creative person because they represent this ideal form of value-producing worker. Samuel Franklin traces the unexpectedly short cultural history of creativity in his book, The Cult of Creativity. He writes, quote, the development of the concept of creativity by psychologists and creative thinking experts allowed for the emergence of a new form of subjectivity, the creative person. The creative person was a producer in a world of consumers. The moral value communicated here is clear. Do you want to be part of the 1% or part of the 99%? Franklin closes the book on an expansive note. He doesn't argue to get rid of the category of creativity, of course. He argues that we need both a more expansive and less extractive notion of what creativity is and that we need to recognize the equal value of other human pursuits. He writes, quote, the notion that creativity is what makes us human is both toothlessly vague and far too limiting, especially if it makes us think of other very human impulses to care, to maintain, to collect, to reuse, to copy, to fight, and even to follow as less relevant. To care, to maintain, to collect, to reuse, to copy, to fight, or even to follow is a good way to sum up ways of participating in social media beyond creating. And maybe when it comes to how we spend our time online, we can stop thinking of it as a choice between creating and consuming and start thinking of it as a canvas on which to explore a multitude of human impulses. Thanks for listening to What Works. My goal is to expose the assumptions and hype that make up the 21st century economy and reveal the ways in which our work and culture are shaped by harmful systems. Every episode of What Works is also published in essay form in my newsletter. Subscribe at whatworks.fyi, where you can also chip in $7 per month to support my work, get premium content, and discounts to workshops. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a podcast production agency for people changing the way we think about culture, creativity, leadership, and work. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. 
This episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer, and Sean McMullen is our fearless leader and executive producer. What Works is produced on stolen land. We're grateful to the Susquehannock and Conestogo peoples who stewarded this land for thousands of years before the arrival of white colonists. The Yellow House is on the unceded land of the Kutenaha Nation and the tribes of the Salish and Kalispell.